Greg Masters reporting from the second annual Florida Association of ACOs Conference here in Orlando. And uh, it is my privilege to introduce you to Joshua Rosenthal, who's the chief science officer of a company called Roadmap. Hi, Josh. Hey, Greg. How are you? Doing great. So you just gave a, a rather interesting presentation there up on the stage. So before we drill into that, tell me a little bit about Joshua Rosenthal. What's your background? What are you doing in healthcare today? Yeah, it's kind of a funny story. So uh, I used to teach special education in a public elementary school and then uh, did a degree in French Renaissance history, ended up getting a Fulbright and going to an interdisciplinary think plank tank over in Europe and uh, getting into quantifying qualitative data and then met a couple people who were deep into healthcare, married one of them, and, uh, and here we are. We've done it a few times in a row now. So now you've had a, a tenure uh, or have a tenure over at CMS uh, what, and you've been doing something around unlocking data. What's going on with that? Yeah, so CMS has a, a huge initiative around uh, making data publicly available. And so this is kind of in line with a lot of the White House and administration uh, agenda with making any data that has taxpayer contribution to it available in a machine readable format. So if you can think of whether data was published and all sorts of great things happened with that. Geolocation data was published and the market took up and adopted that. And so now they're doing the same thing with healthcare. And so I sit on a government committee and uh, help them do some of that stuff. And now out of all this activity, I know you've got a lot of stuff swirling around, but has come this company called Roadmap with a W, R-O-W-D-M-A-P. Tell us a little bit about that. That's true. We couldn't, we couldn't get the naming rights for R-O-A-D. Um, no, in, in all seriousness. Um, so Roadmap uses you know uh, a number of different public data sources, but it's not really about the data. It's about taking you know highly validated, tried and true academic literature around this concept of unwarranted variation or no or low value spend. And what that means is that 30 cents out of every dollar goes to stuff that people don't need. I don't mean outright fraud or waste or abuse or all the stuff that you, you typically think about, but I mean when given a choice where the outcomes will be the same, often providers pick you know, doing a procedure or prescribing something that isn't necessary or prescribing or doing a higher intensity procedure. And the reason for that is, as the literature tells us, they get paid more for that. They get paid more for doing more things and higher intensity things. So we've had a series of definitions of what those things are in the literature. We've just never had the public data available to, to be able to nationally benchmark that until CMS came along and, and pushed the stuff out. And so now we can. And that basically means we can see you know, which doctors, individual physicians, groups, specialists, hospitals, post-acute centers are responsible for this 30 cents that goes to nothing um, and how they send patients back and forth among themselves. What that really means is which ones are practicing in a way that maximizes fee-for-service versus which ones are practicing in a way that, that uh, maximizes different pay-for-value programs, whether they're ACOs or capitated models or value-based purchasing. So those of us in healthcare leadership for the last couple of decades have been trying to get our hands around this um, this conundrum, as Atul Gawande called it uh, some time ago. I call it the healthcare board. But um, um, as we're looking perhaps uh, at the activity that's ensued as a result of the passage of the Affordable Care Act, for instance, ACOs and the like, uh, we're now trying to get our hands around this uh, risk assumption, gradual risk assumption, and you're right in that space. Tell me what you do there, particularly for 
uh, uh, ACOs or entities considering uh, driving value in, in local markets? Sure. So a lot of the a lot of the measures and metrics that people have used in the pay-for-value arrangements really aren't new. They're kind of holdover metrics and measures and risk assumption models from fee-for-service. Um, and they're reappropriated for these new things. So they're measuring things like standard utilization or standard unit cost. And they're not taking into account this 30 cents, which goes to nothing. And that 30 cents, that trumps everything. That's more than 4% here in this utilization or you know 10% on this unit cost. And so unless you're taking that into account, you don't have a baseline to even be able to determine you know, whether you're going to be successful in this arrangement or not, or which providers are going to be successful with you or not, or how to compensate them or how to change patient referrals around that. So literally what we do is we take this publicly available data, looking at the provider's practice patterns and prescription patterns, procedural patterns, and who they send and refer to just on these definitions of low or no value care, which is the huge bucket that drives everything. Um, and we're able to see how they're actually practicing. And often that's the exact opposite of a classic utilization or risk assessment. And what I mean by that is if there's a provider at a lower intensity option doing more stuff and more costly stuff, but she's using it to prevent people from going to higher intensity options, she is going to come out poor on a classic traditional you know, risk assessment uh, in terms of she's going to have higher utilization and higher unit cost. But if you look at the overall bundle or basket of care along that care path that contributes to that 30 cents, she's making money for whoever owns the risk. So we can essentially go in and look at every doctor and say, based on how you currently practice, not making any changes, um, you are making money or will make money for these people in these arrangements, which is kind of hidden value. Oftentimes a lot of the doctors, they sort of know they're doing better than they're getting credit for in a classic risk <laughs> analysis, right? And they know it in their bones, but they don't know how to articulate it. They have their internal data that may not be believed, or they plead kind of case mix adjustment, which really isn't the answer. The answer is they're practicing lower intensity patterns, which often aren't shown in a, a linear analysis. Does that make sense or is that a lot to throw at you? No, it makes total sense. I'm just curious, why is this below the radar of a typical actuarial cut at this stuff? Because usually they're looking at a, a slice of the data. They're looking at utilization of this type of procedure or this type of intensity. To be able to tie, to be able to tie uh, procedures and prescriptions across care paths, across bundles, that sounds really simple. It's really simple to say, hey, we know someone comes in presenting with a pain in their back, and we know they get a certain type of MRI, and we know they get a certain fusion. It's really difficult to tie that analytically and pull it together. Those definitions are in the public domain. Anyone can go get them, looking at Dartmouth and other sources. But to be able to pull the data into that framework, it, it's a huge level of clinical expertise. The folks that are on our board of advisors and our newly announced chief clinical risk officer are the folks literally behind Dartmouth that own patents on the work. And so it's, it's not a financial exercise where you're calculating numbers. There's a clinical component you have to tie together to be able to make that financial component. And that's just, it's, it's very, I don't want to say sophisticated, but you have to have your clinical ducks in a row. And you kind of have to be thinking about it that way. And that's not a typical MBA answer to it. So technically, anyone can do it. The data's out there, but it's really difficult to be able to pull off. Excellent. So if, if I'm an ACO thinking about putting a toe in the water here of risk assumption, what should I be thinking about, and what are some of the tools and resources I should access? Yeah, so you really want to be thinking about, I mean, you definitely have to look at the, 
there's a couple different ways to answer the question. On one hand, you need to look at the lowest level how you actually get paid metrics, right? Because if you're going to go into a traditional ACO, there's established metrics for how you're going to get paid. And what you really want to look at is how do you practice against those metrics and what's your population like? The hidden dimension that kind of gets back to your question about the risk is it's not just a function of how you practice medicine, but your population. You can literally take a provider who's thinking about dipping their toe in the water and has a certain type of population they're serving that's practicing in a certain way, put them in a traditional ACO and they'll lose their shirt, put them in a different type of arrangement and they'll make money hand over fist or vice versa. And so you really have to look at, you know, are you mitigating this low value care? And there's public sources you want to look at for that. Um, and how's your population? And what I mean is if you're an awesome doctor and your population is a train wreck, um, then MSSP just plain is going to be great for you because it's, you know, low benchmark, cutting fat, easy peasy. If you're an awesome doctor and your population's great, that means, you know, an ACO, traditional or, you know, otherwise. And if you're an awesome doctor and your population's great and you're mitigating this no value care, then a next gen ACO is probably going to work out really well for you. And if you don't have a lot of supply in your area, if you're the only game in town, Meaning if I look at the public data and I have more diabetics per PCP in my area than in other areas, I might want to think about a virtual ACO or some sort of capitated arrangement with a payer because you control those patients and can provide disproportionate care if you're good and you're going to make whoever owns the risk, you know, an awful lot of money based on the population supply and, uh, supply and demand dynamics outside of any of your medical management. And that's not to mitigate all the enablement and improving your medical practice, but it's basically to say, you gotta get your baseline right and make an informed decision. I get it, informed decision, it's pretty good. <laughs> Excellent, Josh. So, so some of these ACOs who are uh, actually winning, if you will, on the shirt saving side, um, can't necessarily attribute as to why. Is there some way that uh, we do deep dive here and actually determine the whys of, of their so-called success? Yeah, we actually have clients in provider groups and ACOs and we're able to do that. And sometimes it is literally because they are who they say they are and they're doing a great job. Sometimes it's because of the, their population and the way they practice compared to their population. And sometimes it's because of the individual program mechanics. You know, they're in year one, year two, things are gonna change. Um, so we can absolutely do that. On the flip side, it's something else to think about. Most of the news that you hear, you know, Pioneer isn't working or these ACOs aren't able to do this or blah, blah, blah. What it really means is that you can't claim that the program isn't working because you haven't appropriately baselined the thing, right? You have not done a basic baseline analysis and you don't have your mechanism tied to it you know, from a government perspective. And so that's just something to think about from a policy perspective. You know, if an ACO isn't working or the majority of ACOs aren't working, you really want to look at where they're located, the populations they're serving, and these type of practice patterns. Have they made an informed decision getting into it? And when we look at the national data, we see them doing really well, better than you see on kind of a, a non-adjusted base mark. Uh, and that's, that's not just for ACOs, it's the same thing for medical home and all sorts of things too. Um, if you kind of throw innovation programs like spaghetti against the wall and you don't have it baselined against the population, you don't know if the population's contributing, if it's a self-selection of the doctors signing up, there's all sorts of things that go into it. Right, this is across the entire spectrum, whether it's on the value-based bundle side, all the way up to Medicare Advantage. Amen, no, absolutely. And so that's, the public data literally allows you to do that. And so what I'd encourage a provider doing is to use the public data, take a long, hard look at their population, the prevalence, obviously, 
the health behaviors, because that's what actually out predicts claims on risk. That's a, a tried and true data set that's out there in an Excel sheet they can look at, as well as the uh, as well as supply and demand. How many PCPs versus how many diabetics? How many heart surgeons versus how many people with COPD and CHF? If you're oversupplied, things will look one way and you're going to end up in a certain position. If you're undersupplied, things will look another way. You want to have the basics of your market in hand. So if I'm trying to do a bundle, for instance, and I have 10 times as many you know, hip surgeons as anybody else, I'm going to have a bunch of people ended up on my door, right? And I'm going to be swimming against the current. If I'm trying to do an ACO and my population is a train wreck and I'm oversupplied, I'm, I'm going to have a really difficult time doing that. And so all that's to say, some of the ACOs doing a good job are, some of them are probably doing a better job than they're getting credit for, and we sort of don't have baseline visibility to be able to make the assessments, and so that's what we're hoping the next generation of ACOs use some of these ratio-based metrics to be able to, to tease out that actuarial component we're talking about. So Josh, it sounds to me like uh, you've got the right message at the right time. Tell me a little bit about the inspiration and the vision for Roadmap. Where'd it come from? Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting story in that um, you know, I essentially got outvoted from doing gambling and horse racing for our next startup, and so my other partners wanted to go into healthcare, and, and here we are. Um, we wanted to do something with data, we wanted to do something with supply and prediction, and Todd Park uh, was a friend at the time and at human, Health and Human Services and said, hey, we're going to start putting a bunch of public data out there, and we're going to create this office of you know data information products and services, and we hope to have happen just what happened with weather data and geolocation data. and so. We said, you know what, that sounds pretty interesting. Um, from our perspective and even you know, their perspective putting the data out, it's tricky because some of these data sets intermediate or displace um, you know, traditional sets. So if I can put a single data set out and it outpredicts my risk compared to claims, the larger analytics groups may have a difficult time adopting that. Um, and for kind of the kids and typical the hackers who are starting it and playing around, they may not understand the intricacies of the supply system. And so we saw a real opportunity to say, hey, this public data is really valuable. It's transformed other areas. It can be heavily disintermediating, so we have to be careful how we take it out to the market. And we really have to use kind of an extended tenure in the market to be able to figure out how do we best take it out. Um, the real challenge was that is that gives you complete visibility into how much providers are contributing to payers and payers' hidden value. So if I wanted you could use it for you know, nefarious purposes if you felt like it. Um, so we were really careful about the first clients we were signing up, provider-owned lead systems, uh, provider-owned plans, you know, uh, 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 non-profit, you know, Blue Cross Blue Shields of so-and-so, that sort of stuff. Um, and so it's been a good run. Um, and so that was the genesis, them putting the public data out, us having heavy-duty experience with this concept of variation and no value care and never having the data before and so being able to marry that was sort of the magic. Shout out to Todd Park. So let my hero. So yeah so so the final question is it looks like judging from the response and I've seen you around a number of conferences you're getting a great reception wherever you go so what's next for Roadmap? Any uh, any particular stretches you might want to mention as to what you're looking for? Yeah, so um, we started out in Medicare Advantage working with payers and have gone into exchange and Medicaid and commercial and then have flipped over and started working with the providers, the national systems and uh, specialty groups and uh, this, that and other things. So it's been, it's largely been hiring has been kind of one of the chief difficulties because we need, we need people who are kind of in between the space of, of kind of 
you know, jaded and have seen it before, done it before, and have lost their spark versus, you know, kids coming out. And so that means kind of really eclectic skill sets. And we're based in Louisville, Kentucky, which not everyone is enthusiastic about, but we love Go Louisville. Um, bourbon, bluegrass, horses, it's not to like. So data scientist, I don't know. Just, uh, I'm going to edit that. Drinkers. I'm going to edit that. I'm going to edit that out because right. we don't want you slamming your hometown. No, we so, love it. I'm so, serious. So, I'm, all right. I'm, I'm serious. Uh, we love it. What's not like bourbon and blue? Seriously, we actually have an office on Main Street and have a full bourbon bar in the space. It's a, it's a good time. There's an urban bourbon trail that just started, so it's, it's good. So you're recruiting and 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 you're growing because you you really have the right message at the right time. Yeah, we are recruiting and we're growing. And so part of the challenge is just kind of managing that growth. And so we're, we're definitely on the lookout for, you know, all sorts of odds and ends. Um, uh, you know, the litany of which I can't even, you know, think of right now, but uh, this, that, and the other thing. And, uh, and part of it's kind of just your standard growing pains, growing and scaling. We, we've done this a few times where we've built large companies and scaled them, you know, to you know, hundreds of millions of members. And, uh, and that's been great. Um, so technologically, we're in very good shape, but it's, it's kind of on the, the personnel and finding the right people. And, and part of that is really around kind of finding people who want, who see a bit of a mission. I mean, we're not just doing this to maximize profit and value. We really believe you create the most public and social good by getting people to people who deliver the right care to have the most patience, as simple as that sounds. Rather than changing people, rather than changing the way they do this or that, that's great if you can impact provider, consumer behavior, more power to you. But we really believe the way you best improve care is to get the most people to the people who practice care the best. And if you get rid of that 30 cents, that goes to nothing. You have more than enough care to go around. You all sorts of things open up. Um, and so finding someone who's interested in that but also has either technical or data science skills, or um, it's it, it's it's tough to do. So very mission oriented, which sounds a little silly, but is what makes us get up in the morning, I guess. I get it completely. Well, Josh, thanks for doing what you're doing. Keep with the good work at Roadmap, and we'll keep an eye on what you're doing. Oh, thanks so much, Greg. Really appreciate it. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.